Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Modern Mind with today's guest, Mr. Rory Lawson, who has a much more convincing Scottish accent than I do. Rory joins me in the studio to discuss his rugby career, ultimately how it was abruptly ended, and the fairly severe learning curve he had to go through to find his identity as he built a business and and came to terms with what a life without rugby looked like for him. We explore what it's like to be a leader when he first felt like one, how he's applied those lessons to being a father, and what he sees leadership defined as. As well as this, we deep dive on nature nurture given the rich sporting background that his family had, along with a topical discussion on the NFL versus rugby, because we were actually talking at length whilst I was over in New York and went to an NFL game thinking, wow, this is a totally different league in many ways to rugby, but also rugby is a totally different league to this in many ways. So we explore that a little bit more than I expected us to, but once we started pulling on that thread, there was nowhere to hide. So expect all of that and much, much more in today's episode. But before we dive into everything I've just discussed, a couple of housekeeping requests. If it's your first time listening to the show, please do make sure to hit follow or subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Even if it's not your first time listening to the show, why haven't you done those things already? Thank you very much. Share this episode or an episode previously with a friend, along with rating and or reviewing the show on whatever platform you're listening on. We're also available on YouTube, and if you could sign up to the mailing list via the show notes down below, that would be remarkable. Now that those simple requests are out of the way, it is important to mention the show's sponsors, as without them, there would be no show. First up, we have Vivo Barefoot, who I've been wearing since January 2019, and you won't really catch me in anything else day to day. I'm I'm kind of morphing into a cartoon character at this point because I'm in the Novus pretty much every day. And whilst I do have a wide array of other options available at the house, because Vivo covers you across pretty much every setting that you could imagine, I've just really chosen the Novus as my weapon of choice day to day. So much so that I've actually stockpiled for the future, as I love them that much. All Vivos are wide, thin, and flexible, and have an open toe box as well as being zero drop, which is much more akin to being, you guessed it, barefoot. And this means that you can build your foot strength from the ground upwards. Study from the University of Liverpool in 2021 has indicated that you can improve your foot strength by up to 60% simply by wearing a pair of Vivos day to day. So if you want to be jacked and tan in your day-to-day life and apply your feet to that equation, then Vivos are the way to go. Generally speaking, my feet feel stronger, more robust, and I feel more in control of how I'm moving, running, and I'm just more comfortable on a day-to-day basis in them. And if you want to give them a go, you can use the code FERGUS20 until the end of 2023 to get 20% off. And if you're listening after that, then sorry, Fergus Vivo will have to do as it will get you 15% off. Please do let me know how you get on over social media as well, as I would love to hear how much you love them. Next up, we have Days Brewing, whose alcohol-free lager and pale ale are brewed just down the road from me in East Lothian, but sold nationwide. And I like to keep a fully stocked fridge, because when I'm craving a beer at the end of a stressful day, or at the end of a long week, or maybe with a, a takeaway on a Saturday night after a big training session, dare I say, when I'm inclined to reach for a beer, and there aren't any, but there is an alcohol-free one, I can have all of the ceremony of a beer, all of the ceremony of a pint, all of the enjoyment of a pint without any of the downsides, because it really doesn't take much alcohol for me these days for my cognitive ability, sleep, and therefore overall recovery to be affected. So simply by giving myself access to icy cold days lager or pale ale, I am making sure that whenever I have that sort of inclination, I can just have an alcohol-free one, enjoy myself, get all that I want out of it without any of the downsides. That's not to say that I won't have an alcoholic beverage or or several every once in a while. It's coming up to Christmas time, which means that that'll be a bit more common. But generally speaking, day-to-day, week-to-week, I like to really minimize my alcohol intake for the sake of overall productivity, cognitive ability, sleep, and recovery. So if you'd like to do the same, then you can save yourself 20% off with the code MODERNMIND20 at checkout. And again, do please let me know how you get on over social media. So without any further ado, let's dive into today's episode with Mr. Rory Lawson. Mr. Lawson, how are we? Good, thanks Fergus. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. It's uh, number two in the in the studio and it's great that you have the most scottish accent that we possibly could have (laughs) in the house to balance out against me so i'm going to kick things off with a question that's fresh in my mind because we were speaking whilst i was in new york and i went to an nfl game so tell me why rugby is superior to the nfl oh well 
that's you've put me on the spot. The, the opening <laughs> gambit, Ferg. I mean, if, if that's the starting point, where are you going to take me after this? Uh, well, look, I think I think both both have their values. Uh, I would. They're different games, aren't they? Yes, there's there's physicality. The ball's the same shape. Um, you know, the, people go for speed and skill and power and that physicality, the tackling. Uh, you know, I guess they are incredibly different sports because in rugby, you couldn't have human beings the size that a lot of these NFL guys are because it's a, it's a different challenge on... You know, you're the expert when it comes to physiology and, you know, the physics around it. But trying to move somebody around who is, I don't know, 400 pounds, whatever it might be, for 60 minutes maybe in a game of rugby and, you know, high intensity for an anaerobic for short periods, that's going to be that's going to be tricky, right? But I think there's there's joy in both. What I would say is that a great game in the NFL and a great game in rug- rugby are both mega to watch and it gives fans something to to get engaged with. I would say that what rugby needs to learn from the NFL is turning it into the event because I'm sure you can uh, you know give some first-hand experience but I went to the first ever NFL game at Wembley yep. and just the way that the Americans do the event, you know, the showbiz element, the the entertainment around it uh, is is different, and I want you know, would would rugby be a better game if there were four quarters with some entertainment in between that draws more people into it? Possibly, would it take away from the the endurance part of the eighty minutes? Maybe, but could that actually solve some of the challenges around you know the the injuries that that happen? I guess in both in both games, but you know, I um, I like tuning into the occasional game of NFL. Um, you know, I obviously love my rugby, but I think rugby needs to continue to look as to how it evolves to grow the game. And, you know, the World Cup's going to be in the US in eight years' time. Yep. It needs to be a game that isn't alien to the population of however, 350 million or whatever it is in the US. Plenty. I think yeah. the population a plenty. The, the reason I ask is because of a lot of the things, a lot of the things that you touch upon there, I find myself thinking about when you look at the state of play that rugby's in in the UK. And my overwhelming takeaway from watching Jamie play in the NFL at the New York Giants Stadium was this is a business, not a sport. Whereas in the UK, everything's sport-led, business second. And rugby as a business in the UK is not necessarily on its feet as much as it has been in the past. So given that you're still in the game, from a punditry point of view, you obviously have a lot of friends still in the game. You're very much keeping a close eye on it. What, What do you see the biggest changes being from a fans business engagement relationship the the spectacle and the show business around it from your time playing versus now where where do you see the the crux of the issues being with rugby struggling as it is well look at you know you highlight the the business element and it it's not a surprise to anybody when you see the premiership the impact on the premiership and now down to 10 teams so a couple of teams have gone to the wall because they've been run as sports clubs not as businesses and whether that's the salary capping, um, you know, there multi- there's a multitude of different elements. It's, it's, it's sad to see because England has the greatest pool of players anywhere in the world. And for a large number of players, that's their livelihood gone because there's only so many positions in the game now in England that people can go to. The academy system, you know, people have been chewed up and spat out by that. Now, you saw, uh, I don't know if you would have seen... Uh, the big game 15 down at, at Twickenham, Harlequins against Gloucester, you know, DJ beforehand, firing everything up, light show, music, turn it into an event. Um, that's that's a step forward, but we need that in the Six Nations. We need that in World Cup games, you know, draw in this audience, make it that event. Now, the changes from, you know, I stopped, I stopped playing 10 years ago. It was, it was August last year that, you know, I, I was told I was, I was done. And you know, ten years has gone by. A lot's changed. The games changed slightly. The laws have changed a bit. Nuance changes to the laws. Um, social media is a big thing, and I th- for me, I think like rugby. The rugby's greatest asset is the fact that it's the ultimate team sport. Yes, don't get me wrong. There's the the shapes and sizes are a little bit uh, more standard now. 
rather than it being a game for all shapes and sizes. It's the sad reality being that 12s look like sixes. Well, exactly, right? <laughs> You've got wingers running, yeah. running out that could play in the front row. Yeah, Exa- exactly, exactly. But there's still a place for Darcy Graham. There's still a place for Weenie Antonio at 145 kilos. You know, Darcy at 80 kilos soaking yeah. wet, probably. So um, I, I think for me, but so the ultimate team game, but a game whereby individuals aren't given the opportunity to showcase themselves because you know they talk, I've I've done a load of interviews with a number of Kiwis and they're typically really not great at talking about themselves because it's all about the team, team first. You know, they're no dickheads culture, um, and I think that's one of the one of the areas whereby we need personalities to be able to step forward. You know. You need Ellis Genge to be allowed to unleash himself. We've seen it a little bit with Joe Marler. You know, imagine, you know, Big Jim, who we both know, like great pal of mine, former teammate. Big Jim wasn't allowed to be Big Jim when he was playing rugby because if he was Big Jim and, uh, you know, albeit social media was on, on an upward curve, not where it is now when he was still playing. But if he was that way and then he had a bad game on a Saturday, someone would tell him that it's because he was... You know, being Big Jim. Yeah, we, that, that's the way he was behind the scenes. But if he was stuck in front of the media, he would have to toe the party line. And you know, I remember going into media interviews with a, a, a sheet of paper telling me what the key messaging was, right? And so, therefore, I think this balance of understanding that that unions, clubs need to protect themselves from being exposed by, you know unleashing a rogue who says something a little bit, you know, against uh, against the norm that gets picked up and turned into a headline, but also giving people the platform to be themselves. I think that's where social media, the, the people who are good at it are starting to really work that out. I think so. I think, again, going back to the NFL comparison, because that was, that was my overarching takeaway, was this is just a different league yeah. in terms of that exact point. They had highlights of what specific players were wearing as they were coming in off the bus, what cars they were driving in, all this like, oh, it's almost yeah. a bit tabloidy. Yeah, yeah. But if you, I mean, Jim, Jim can talk on any subject matter, the way he discusses things on the podcast, yeah. and he's creative director for World Rugby now, yeah. which is obviously a great position to be in on this topic. But there's so many personalities in rugby. I, my playing time was cut short because of too many concussions, and I was never going in a particular direction beyond recreational level but I love the game I think character building wise the range of athletic ability that I have has come from rugby and it's something I definitely want my kids that do not yet exist to play in the future but I often find myself thinking does the game have the legs for that to actually be as accessible a reality as it was for me growing up and I'm not sure yeah look I think it's it's not comparing apples with apples NFL to rugby right you've got Com- but in order to grow the game, you've got to grow the commercial value of the game. You've got to be able to grow the value of your assets, which are your players. And you've got to then be able to commercialize that. And I think until you get exposure, you know, the NFL do it so well when you're getting some, you know, the in- the the in-game insights from some of the people playing. When you, But also, you know, for big sponsors, they want to know that they're going to get access to and it's going to be covered in the media that it's going to be they're going to actually get value for what they're doing but you only create that value by giving the access to the players behind yep. the scenes you know we'll, we'll see in a couple of weeks time what happens with the the six nations netflix right well you know that'll be a behind the scenes as i understand it there was some behavioral shifts in some of the players when a camera's in front of them right and maybe trying to you know, put themselves across as being slightly different, even to the the person who their teammates know, right? Because there's a platform. So even that 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 should hopefully be a shift forward and give people insights into what it is. But still, that's only scratching the surface. Around you know, I've got the old Gloucester Boys WhatsApp group, and honestly, the, the, it has me in tears of laughter the majority of the time when you've got when you've got guys like Big Jim, Andy Hazel talking, and Luke Narraway talking absolute nonsense torching torching the same boys that were playing alongside them 10 years ago those are the things that light me up but if you know even if you got 50 percent of that to the to the fan base to the commercial partners to the broadcasters and you can see them trying to move things forward then it would change the game 
Yeah. The, the, the reason I brought up the comparison is just because it's fresh in my mind and it's, it's great to get insights from somebody that still has, well, has been in and is now still in, but in a different capacity of the game because, yeah, it, make, it makes me, it, it's that the future of the game I'm concerned for. It doesn't keep you up at night, but mm. I know how much value I've got from it personally. So I very much hope for the longevity of the game we find solutions to these yeah. problems. And I thought I was truly blown away with the lens of, wow, this is a business, not a sport that I experienced just recently when we were last chatting. But we'll we'll move on because your career wasn't in in very, very long commercial breaks between downs. It was in a much faster pace game. And again, going back to the character building of rugby, I want to ask how much of an influence you think your family's background had on your sporting upbringing? Because obviously Bill, Alan, huge influences on the direction you went in, but you've built a career, you've built a life, you've built a family around rugby and it's the nature-nurture debate, isn't it? Is Do you think you would have pulled on the thread of rugby, professional sport, and the career that you've gone down were it not for that exposure at a young age? Look, I think um, it's, it's something I think about all the time now with two young boys, right? It's, um, you know, I I grew up um, being surrounded by sport. And this is this came from, you know, Papa's the voice of rugby and going down to Hoik and seeing him in his office and the videotapes everywhere, putting on his high, uh, you know, the digging the VHS out and and firing in his in his machine and watching the Bill's best bits on his TV and and but then going down to the you know Wilton Park in Hoik and Papa was a PE teacher in his, in his background and he had the he still had the key to the padlock that had the big green shed at the back of Hoik Wilton Park and you'd go and he'd he'd unlock the padlock. Open the open the door, and all of this sports kit would just fall out. It'd be you know javelins and discus. Not I mean a, a health and safety advisor's nightmare. You know tackle shields, rugby balls, footballs, everything, and that would just be you know summer days. Go down there in the summer holidays, charge about. You know as but everything was about it was about sport and the platform that that gave you to life in general. So it wasn't whilst Papa was. You know, the voice of rugby, while well, my dad had played, you know, for Scotland at rugby and had a, a esteemed amateur career alongside professionalism, given that professional rugby didn't exist. Um, it was about sport. So mum and dad through school, what, uh, you know, I did cricket, athletics, in, uh, tennis in the summer. I did rugby, cross country, squash in the winter. Um, it was all at uh, golf all year round, it was all about the platform that sport gave you for, for life. And then obviously as I got older, uh, you know, I guess I was identified as being relatively talented in rugby. I had the background in rugby. I guess I had the expertise of, you know, mum, mum's as knowledgeable as anybody in the buddy game of rugby with, you know, being brought up around Papa and loves, loves the sport. Um, and I think having an older brother who was also, he's a, you know, he's a really good athlete. He was a good rugby player um, and had the opportunity to go professional, but I actually chose that it wasn't necessary for him. He played Scotland Sevens. He, he, he was given the opportunity with Edinburgh professionally, but for him, rugby was a lifestyle that fed his life. And he loved the social element of it. He loved the training element. He loved the competition, but didn't love the thought of being told to go in a squat rack and squat two and a half times his body weight right it's it was one of those things for him um but I think for me the you know sport was always a big part of my upbringing it, it turns out that I was quite good at rugby and there was able to focus on it I loved it what it gave me with regards to my mates now from the rugby team that I played in at school are still my best mates um it, it became a profession it became you know, a, a passion that became a, was a hobby that became a job. And, you know, if I, if I had my time again, I'd do things slightly differently, probably because you get, you get immersed in it to a level that you kind of lose perspective at times of, of the life that surrounds it. Right. Because it's the only thing that's important to you. But um, yeah, I think it's so, it offered me so much. The family um, loved it probably struggled as mum and dad probably struggled as much with me stopping playing rugby as I did uh, because they'd been on every touchline since I was playing under eights rugby at Stirling County through school days through club days at Harriet's and then into professional rugby so yeah 
was a good old journey. It was. Um, we'll, we'll deep dive on that a little bit because I think especially the, the, the concept of leadership, which is obviously now how you spend your day to day, is something that's been developed throughout that career. But if we start right at the end, which is the here and now against the background of the family sort of thing, how has the lens you've just described, that experience growing up and the experience you have as a leader molded how you like to act as a father? Oh, that's a big question. Um, every, every human beings, as you know, as individuals, we have a truly unique lens on how we see the world, right? And it's you know, I, I, and so much of it is hardwired back to our experiences. You know, if you listen to Simon Sinek, you'll say, you know, the vast majority of the human being that you are is the part of the experiences that you had up to the age of sixteen. With the with the work that I do now, a big part of what we do is is being able to drill into the individual and their experiences um, between zero and twenty two. Those really informed years, earliest memories, uh, you know, upbringings, the environment that you were, the you know, the failures, the wins, the the challenges, um, the hardship, whatever it may be. Um, and you know, I've reflected a lot on my own, and I was brought up around great people, and. I was given an incredibly fortunate upbringing to, you know, do the stuff that I wanted with the people who I wanted to do it with, um, and I was given a essentially a platform to succeed and, I guess, the tools to kind of do it in many ways. So it was, but then equally, it had to come from that inner drive, which I saw from the work ethic and um, and investment that came from of time to understand what's important to you from from parents right dad when i when i talk about you know dad what were your memories of gregor and i and Lindsay growing up as kids he was like well you know your mum dealt with the most of it right and he worked incredibly hard to give us provide the platform for us to succeed and do the things that he wanted us to be able to do i think parenthood parenting has changed now and there is a shift culturally i think in the involvement of both parents where both parents are, are together in the parenting of the kids. But, you know, the fundamentals of it, I've, you know, I've, you, you learn on the job, but when it comes to role modeling um, and being able to think back to my experiences as a kid, trying to create the same for Freddie and Louie now with, with India, um, you know, as us as parents is, is massive. And I've made, a heap of mistakes. I've, you know, I've behaved against the value set that I set for myself. I've, and, you know, that's created challenges, but, you know, at the core, I'm doing my best and trying to continue to grow and uh, give, give the boys now what the platform that, uh, you know, Gregor, Lindsay and I had to, to succeed that mum and dad gave us. So 31 caps for Scotland with a illustrious career along the way, various clubs, Gloucester, Newcastle, and, and obviously international stuff as well. What moment did you feel that you had earned the badge of leader intrinsically? Did it ever come? Does it exist now? Is there still some imposter syndrome whenever you're presenting the discussion? Or was there a moment where you felt that was a series of decisions that means I've earned that right? Look, I think the... One of the reasons that I'm as passionate about what I do now as I am is that I captain Scotland without one minute's worth of leadership development. You know, whether from... You'd learn from coaches, you'd have conversations with coaches, but with regards to a designed leadership development programme that would develop self-awareness, others' perspectives, um, that would then inform decision-making, uh, there, no, there was nothing... And there still is limited stuff that goes on. There's sports psychology stuff, which is tremendous. In-game, thinking clearly, you know, redhead, bluehead, whatever it might be. The, the Kiwis are, have, have been big on that. Um, but with regards to developing the human being that can then improve and enhance what they do as leaders, as a, as a sports person, I, don't, I think there's still a massive gap in that market. Now, I, I vividly remember being asked to captain Scotland for the first time and you know, on the Friday night before we played South Africa, standing in front of the rest of my teammates for the next day and having to 
you know, plant the seed and say a few words. And I had guy, you know, Chris Patterson, Nathan Hines, Ross Ford, Sean Lamont, guys who are infinitely more experienced than I was. Um, if I align it to what, you know, if you talk about overarching um, fundamentals of leadership and what if you had to really strip it down to a couple of things. For me, leadership you know, and the work that I do with Kianis now, leadership is about decision-making and influence, right? And in rugby, you know, whether you can talk about being, you know, a natural leader as a scrum half, a, a position whereby you had to make multiple decisions, you were close to the action, uh, you drove the strategy and game plan and, um, you know, were right at the center of the calls and so on and so forth. So the decision-making was in there and then for me, it was about how do you influence and enhance the other team mates around you. So, you know, now the work that I do in creating frameworks for success in that would say I had a lot of the tools there, but my self-awareness was, I was relying on innate self-awareness, never, like, never being asked to hold the mirror up to myself and, you know, score, you know, qualify what it is that I'm doing and how I can enhance it and so on. You'd set goals, you'd set, you know, KPIs and all that kind of stuff. You'd get all the data in the world after a game to review yourself. You'd do all the analysis. But actually, from a true leadership perspective, I think my experiences now, my experiences from sport in a different world, my experiences from launching and growing a business, and um, and then now it, they feed into leadership. So I, I can sit opposite someone and say captain of my country in a high performing elite sport and being able to uh, you know I've walked that 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 path I've done similar in business um successes failures so I can sit opposite people with credibility but you know the second you think that you've nailed it as a leader you're going backwards because if you're not growing and improving all the time then somebody else is going to go by you. Or, and even you're not even being the best person that can that you can be potential-wise. How did you deal with the the transition out of rugby? Because it's, it's as you said, it's, it is a lifestyle sport. It's a huge, huge component of your day-to-day. There's a lot around the sport that you can do around the fringes, which means that whilst obviously training time is limited because you're getting bashed about the whole time, the skill work in the scrum half position you can do. There's time you can spend on X, Y, Z. You can always be doing something. You can always be having a couple of pints here or there at the club level, obviously less so when you're at captaining international level. But the the transition, it was a wrist injury, wasn't it? It, it mm. was it was recurring wrist injury. And I can imagine that the, the iterations of trying to make it work, trying to see a way out to get back onto the pitch, the frustration that must have come when you were told you, you you didn't decide you were told that that that's it isn't it yeah. how was the what was the initial spike in emotion that came with that and then how did you re- reframe it into ultimately launching the first business how long have you got <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know uh you know Fergus I've got you know having having listened to a lot of your stuff a lot of your background your hinterland like there there are there are some real crossovers primarily focused around Newcastle right um my my career ended at Newcastle uh, with a, a one-off injury to my wrist that went from professional rugby player one day to not the next day. And, you know, to give the context, professional rugby, structure, right? And and I'm sure now it's an, e- an email PDF, but in those days it was probably an email PDF, but an A4 piece of paper handed out on a, you know, a, the, the day after a game to say this is the, this is the structure for the following week where to be, what time, what you're doing, what you're wearing, how long it's going to last. Um, you know, meal meal times would be allocated in there. You'd know who you were going to be surrounded with, you know, whether it's backs, forwards, units, um, weight sessions, speed sessions, rugby sessions, defence, attack, kicking, skills, whatever it would be, right? Meal times built in there, analysis, etc. Everything structured, colour-coded, and it is, you are there... If you're not early, you're late. There will be punishments. Um, and it's just all built around discipline that the framework gave you, right? So you go from that to, I'll never forget it, Monday morning, drove from Newcastle to Leeds to 
the hospital down there to see the lead specialist, lead hand and wrist specialist in Europe, Doug Campbell. Um, wonderful Scottish man. Um, he was he's the he's the kind of lead guy for the European Tour Golf and so on. Like brilliant bloke, incredibly good at his job. And I went down there and I sat down with him and we we did a bit of a scan and then he did an assess or assessment, then a scan and then looked at the results and he was like, Rory, I'm sorry to say you're done. I was like, okay, when? Like I've got uh, presumably I've. You know, I played. I played at the weekend. I've trained with the boys all. You know, all through this preseason, where like it doesn't feel that bad. And then he just said, "Look, you're one bad knock away from a wrist replacement." Which at that stage there had been three hundred done in the general public in Europe. Right. Okay. So you know, you're not talking elite sport. You're not talking rugby. You're not talking someone who needed to chuck. You know, eighty, ninety. 15 to 20 meter passes per game with a snap of a wrist, right? Yeah. It's um so it was immediately like, fuck, this is this is this is serious. So that was it. And then got back in the car with head physio, drove back up to Newcastle. And I walked into Kingston Park, into Dean Richards' office, director of rugby. And by then I think the the physio had spoken to him. So he, he said he said, uh, walked in and Dean kind of mumbled off. So uh, I gather you're done. And I was like, yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely devastated, incredibly sad, um, tough to take, blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay, well, look, we'll sort of, we'll sort of a settlement, you know, a, a, a financial settlement or whatever it is. Um, grab your stuff. Don't, you don't need to bother coming in anymore. I was like, right. Okay. Uh, I'd really like to come in and say, you know, let the boys know, because as far as they're concerned, I've, Played the game on the weekend, didn't go off. They're they're none the wiser, and for my own peace of mind, I'd like to be able to you know talk to my teammates. And um, then the next, the Tuesday morning, I woke up and I'd planned to go in, and I, I saw my A4 piece of paper with a schedule on the bedside table, and I went to reach for it, and I was like, "Fuck, I don't need that anymore. Like that has no relevance to my life anymore." And it was almost had this drone view of myself being kind of weighed down in the bed as this five ton weight. And I was like, I can't move. I don't know where I need to go. I don't know what I need to be doing, but I'm going to have to work it out for myself. And I went in that, I went into training and told the boys and I was like, I was pretty emotional about it. And then I'd only been at Newcastle 15 months maybe by then. So I had to work out what the hell I was going to do. And, uh, you know, I took a, I had, I had a little bit of time, you know, a, a few months of, with the settlement that Newcastle paid to be able to work out for myself, but it was dark. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I lost identity. I lost the structure. I lost the framework. Um, I probably, or almost certainly didn't go to the right people to help. I didn't reach out. I, you know, I, I, had to, I had to start again, but I didn't know where to start again. And being honest, you know, I I probably took six months to work out what it was going to do. Um, you know, I met, probably met 150 people for coffee. You know, what do you do? What does that mean? What does the job entail? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Um, and then along the way, I had a great chat with, you know, a great mate who we ended up deciding to launch a business ourselves. And and I launched and ran that, that for six years. But honestly, it, I was probably struggling for identity until I got into doing what I do now. And that's, you know, I, 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 a lot of that's on me understanding the right questions that I would have asked or I should have asked or the people that I should have gone to um, but it's it's tough, you know. You ask anybody to stop the career that they're doing now and then work out what they're going to do next. It's got to create something that is going to give you the earnings that you're looking for, the lifestyle that you're looking to give, a sense of identity and fulfillment and purpose. Ain't easy, um, and it's something that I'm incredibly passionate about. I'd like to be able to help anybody coming out of the game now, um, but you know, there's there's still a lot to do. People are trying really hard, but 
the people in the sport, you know, I had an MA in business, uh, had an MA in business studies before I went into professional rugby, worked with a number of businesses, oil and gas, my brother's business, um, you know, did some, did some other bits in there, but until it's your thing, it's, it's so hard to do. Um, but equally, you know, so blessed I've been able to do rugby for, you know, over a decade and be paid to do it. hundred percent. I can imagine it was a, a complete journey along the way, but what do you think what itch wasn't being scratched in the six years between in the six years that you you owned and ran the business that you then managed to replace when it came to doing what you do now was it was it as simple as passion or was it you weren't equipped with the the toolbox to manage your own mental well-being that came from just doing the time and doing the reps of having the conversations and asking the right questions about yourself yeah, well, I think it's something now that when you, you know, any advice, the advice that I'd give to somebody now, and I guess that's probably the best way to frame it, is if I could go back 10 years now to the, being, you know, rugby finishes, what's next? It's to be able to say, you know, rugby, the experiences, the the life that rugby provides as a platform is something that, I would never change, you know, it was like the, the, the experiences of, you know, touring, of teammates, the brotherhood, whatever you want to call it, the culture of high performance, the learnings, the, you know, the the exposure to media and public that lots of people think they want, but, you know, you're being, you're being measured on decisions in in game that can dictate someone's happiness on a Saturday night, you know, when they go home, uh, you know, whether that's for club or country. Um, but it, it, for me, it would be taking time, something that I think lots of people are really poor at is, you know, post rugby, I was so desperate to find that something that was going to give me that fulfillment, that purpose, that passion, that drive that, yeah, I took time to meet people and, and find out what it might be. But actually, I probably didn't pause enough. It was just like, right, what's next? Where do, where do I go? What's it going to be that I do? What's that going to look like? You know, what might what might it pay me to feed the life that I want to create? And so on. Um, but knowing that there's going to be, always going to be so much disparity between the, the, the career that I just had and the next bit. So understanding that, use that as a, as a fuel for and a skill set learned that could be applied to something else, not as an identity that you kind of need to come to peace with no longer having. It's like former rugby player, or you do a bit of media stuff. Like people still think that the media stuff that I've done for the past 10 years is my main thing, right? And that's, you know, that's something that's probably, I've probably held on to because it's given me that continued connection to the game but actually you know in in the grand scheme of things uh it's you know rugby I, I think I struggled to find something that I could apply the skill set and experience and drive to and it's something that we spoke about you know before coming on the pod you're 10-15 years behind your peers in business and in industry whatever it is even though you've got all that lived experience and some experiences that are way beyond what anybody uh, lots of people could dream of you're actually you've got the imposter of christ majority of my mates have got a dozen 15 years here of business experience they're talking a different language here um so how do i accelerate there you're always in a rush whereas actually and a lot of people now in business you realize lots of people are comfortable what sport gave you was that this environment whereby you're looking around, if you're not getting better every single day, then you might not have a contract, you might not have a job, and you're going to be looked upon by your peers as not fulfilling what's expected of you. And then you go into a different environment. Like, that's what I, I love now is trying to drive excellence and high performance in individuals, in teams, and in cultures, in business. Um, I think sport can learn a lot from business. I think business can learn a lot from sport. And now I've found the passion that is about leadership, about helping people fulfill potential in not only themselves, but allow them to elevate and influence 
you know, um, those around them who they lead. What are the core principles that underpin all of that then? Because you, you work with a variety of organisations in a variety of capacities, and I can imagine, especially post period of our lives from 2020 to 2022 and a bit, not going to say the word, so this doesn't get flagged on Spotify. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cultures, work ethics, hierarchies, all of the things that you deal with on a day-to-day basis now, what are the core principles that you think are either, a, well, what are la- what's lacking for people to achieve the excellence that, that you try and instill in them from a, from a sporting experience point of view? Look, I, I think... It's it's a, it's a it's a difficult uh, question because what I've learned, you know, working with leaders is that leadership is about the individual, and then you compound that in multiple individuals who make up a leadership team, who then look to influence and drive a culture. Okay, so the the starting point has to be on an individual level, whereby you build out, you know, the best leaders I work with, the the, the people who are, you, you, you leave a session or you leave a room and, and you think, wow, those people have a self-awareness. They have an understanding, the, an ability to see others' perspectives and build that into their own self-awareness. Um, they're giving people the tools to succeed. Um, they make sense of complexity rather than trying to show their expertise by talking in a language that is complex they make things simple for people to understand that enables others to to deliver on that um you're talking about the greater good you're talking about sustainable futures and you're talking about making courageous and ethical decisions now those you know those are those are the seven components that actually feed the what we would call the wheel of wise leadership Right. And but the starting point is self awareness. So most people And I assume all six are irrelevant in your mind without that first point. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you don't know yourself and if you're not holding the mirror up to yourself to understand how you can improve and enhance what it is that you're doing, then the rest of the stuff you know, it, it's a, it's a starting point, it's a key component and it's a it's a fundamental. Self-awareness, you know, and it's where the analytics that we use do hold the mirror up, but they're not, we're not giving someone a report and saying, Fergus, this is who you are, this is how you lead, these are the areas you need to improve. We're holding the mirror up, asking questions, say, why might that be the case? You know, we'll dig into the hinterland, right? Let's, let's, Let's find out about you as a human being, the experiences that inform the way that you now lead and take ownership of that as to where you want, where you see that the small number of high impact shifts that could enhance what it is that you're doing. And then you're starting to think, right, who are the others around me who can influence? Or if I'm working alongside you and I know you, your hinterland story, the influence that that could have on me knowing you as a human being, your lived experience, the way you see the world and the ability to understand your perspective on something like you imagine that you compound that across 10 leaders, 20 leaders, 50 leaders or three leaders in a small leadership team. That's mega that the, the positive, the, the, the potential to enhance things in that space is big. And then you get into culture. So but for me, but cult- of- culture follows leadership, doesn't it? Essentially yeah. it's, it's, it's the downstream, it's the downstream outcome of effective leadership in the same way that if we're looking at a hierarchical, typical corporate structure you've got c-suite and then you've got middle management and you've got obviously there'll be more tiers to that but culture from the bottom upwards is created by the top down and leadership from the top down can only create the culture at the bottom by filtering the whole way through whereby if the c-suite are all incredibly vulnerable holding the mirror up to themselves and looking at things through the right lens but that doesn't then filter down to the same behaviors in the middle management then the the sort of jumping between tiers in terms of perception and worldview will fall flat on its face, won't it? So if an individual listening was to hold a mirror up to themselves, what are the questions that you would encourage them to ask to start to pull the thread and think a little bit more on themselves on an individual basis as to how they could start to become a better leader in their own lives? Well, if, if, you, if you strip it back to you know two, two bits, the decision-making and influence, okay? You, you talk about culture – 
there will be people who have a huge influence on the culture of an organization who are who do not have a leadership tag. Okay, they're not part of the C-suite, they're not even part of middle management, but they can influence positively and negatively the culture of a place, right? So at whatever level, influence is a big factor. We all have decisions to make on a daily basis in personal life and in business life as to how you go about doing things. So again, on that level, how much thought do you put into decision-making? Is there a framework that you follow when it comes to really important decisions? Don't get me wrong. You can give, we, we can all make snap, snap decisions based on lived experience, things that don't really matter that much, that have limited impact as to what, you know, what outcome a decision might have. But do people have a framework that they can follow that is going to elevate the, the chance of that decision that they make be giving, leading to a positive outcome? And I would say that, you know, influence and decision-making, lots of people don't challenge their decision-making process um, when it, and therefore it's leave it a little bit to chance in what the outcome might be. I think if you, you know, let's, let's talk about New Year's resolutions, right? Decision-making, what, what, what are the New Year's resolutions that I'm going to commit to? People commit to them, most of them are, are early January now most people have, will have given up on their New Year's resolutions already. Or maybe they'll last January. But actually, how do they hold themselves to account? Lots of people talk about accountability. Oh, I want accountability. Then actually, when they get it, they run away from it. They don't want the accountability. Um, but I think two, two simple things. Who are the people that you're influencing around you? And how, how positive is the influence that you're having on them? And when it comes to the decision-making... What is the framework that you have in place that can increase the likelihood of a positive outcome more more often? Because if if you've got both those things right, then you are enhancing your decision making and the the people around you. And once that foundation is built, every decision you make, every action you take, everything you do within that that circle, as it were, will develop you as a leader with a few deviations along the way where you need to reassess and recalibrate on on those sort of two key points who you're influencing how you're making decisions and i think yeah it, it, it's a good way of looking at things because it makes it one of the key points yeah how okay. do you make how do you make complexity simple yeah. it does make it very simple but that almost makes it inherently harder because it's just being honest with yourself and then taking the action doing the work and people want want it to be more complex because that makes it harder, which makes it more yeah. unattainable, which means that there's a good excuse as to why you haven't done the work to get there. And it's, look, p- people want quick fixes, right? Whether it's losing a bit of Christmas weight in the space of seven days or, you know, whether it's going from, you know, one position in a business to another, they, they want things straight away, right? We're, we're, we're all, you know, lots of people now, the, 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 way, the way of the world is that people want quick fixes. And I think, you know, a lot of the time, these things, these things do take time. Um, behavioral shift is really tough, but that's every, everything that we focus on is behavioral shift. Because I've been to, you know, you could go on a TED talk that would change the way that you think, that would change the dynamic. I, I, I you know, I do keynote speeches whereby I could go in and I could do a keynote speech that would have people smashing the walls down to leave there but then the next morning, they'll probably just jump back on the hamster wheel and run at the same pace that they've been running at. Behavioral shifts are hard, but my God, when you get them going and when you create the out, different outcomes and when you compound that over time and compound that over people and cultures, there's nothing better. And people, you know, I think this is the big challenge is that what are you doing to move the dial? What is the action that you're going to change and what impact is that going to have? Because I think it's all too often, you know, I'm just using a terrible option around New Year's resolutions, but people write down New Year's resolutions and they don't actually talk about why they want to do it. They're not, you know, what is the impact, but also what, you know, what is the action that I continually need to take to be able to create the outcomes that I want to create? Makes perfect sense. And again, it's it's alarmingly simple at its core. But final question, because I know you've got a call very soon. Am I right, Jamie? <laughs> 10 minutes? Oh, oh okay, okay. <laughs> well, you can really pull 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 it out on this one then. Which leader in your experience today has inspired you most and, and why? 
Oh, um, yeah, no, that's uh, it's a it's a really With, tough without one, upsetting actually. anyone. Obviously, uh, well, no, I think you know what it's a it's a it's a combination. It's a combination of a number, and it you know again it, it might sound like a bit of a cop out, but uh, I have been around. Uh, you know, when you talk about role modeling, growing up, um, b- being around, I had a couple of coaches at school who I remembered way more than I did my teachers at school. Um, but, you know, John Foster and Colin Mackay were my PE teachers and rugby teachers at school. And aside from the rugby coaching, they taught, you know, they taught me about turning up with the right attitude, with, you know, with the right appearance and the approach that is going to lead to the greatest success. Um, a lot of it is, Sports coaches, um, I learned, I've learned so much from, you know, Papa with regards to preparation. You know, he would prepare for a commentary to the nth degree at a time before Wikipedia or player profiles. You know, he'd get the annual at the start of a, a year, but he would be down on touchlines looking at body language, having conversations with people. So that curiosity that's carried through. Um, but also the understanding that, you know, he he carried, you know, he was BBC for 50, over 50 years. And he understood that he needed to entertain, he needed to educate, and he needed to um, inspire people who were watching the game. Um, so I think that was, uh, he needed, and but he, he was always about entertainment. Right, and I think if you can't have fun in what you're doing, then you've got to question yourself as well, right? Um, so, teachers, Papa, Mum and Dad, my brother, loads of learnings. Um, I, I did a day a week at Care and Energy uh, in in Edinburgh when I was when I find, signed my first contract, looking to put some of my MA in business studies to work. Sir Bill Gamel uh, was there at the time. I learned a boatload from him. Just you know going into his office, asking questions, him asking questions about sport, understanding those kind of things. Um, Bob Eason from the Scottish Institute of Sport, brilliant. Just just uh, his compassion. Rob Moffat from the Sevens, compassion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, know, I know Rob, yeah, phenomenal in, guy. Phenomenal incredible guy. guy. But it's really interesting. You know, Moff now, uh, Don Leddingham, who are, uh, is uh, founder CEO of Kianis, from the borders, knows Rob well. Um, we, we talk about warmth and edge in leadership and, and you know, warmth being that positivity, that support, that nurturing, that forgiveness, edge being delivery, high performance outcomes, results. And, you know, Rob, Rob was my sevens coach with Scotland, filled with warmth, you know, unbelievable. And alongside Bob Eason, two incredibly warm guys. Now, introducing Rob to this warmth and edge and the analytics side of things, he would actually say, you know what? I wish I had more edge in the delivery of my messaging. And I wish Moff had more edge as well because I I would have probably been better at what I did if he was demanding outcomes, demanding high performance, driving success. Um, So, you know, those guys within it... um, and then, you know, in, in the world of business, my old business partner, Damien Kennedy, learned so much from him. You know, working class lad from the west of Ireland in Cork, his get up and go, his drive, his desire, his resilience to, to stick with it, perseverance. Um, so much that, you know, I, I resonated with me, but also, you know, you, we talk about standing next to like-minded people, right? And Damo was from a different background, had a different hinterland story, but you knew when he was sat on the other side of the desk that you were both laser focused on on the same outcomes. And you know, in 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 the the leadership stuff that I do now, um, there's been a lot a lot of stuff that I've learned from from Don. I've learned a lot from leaders. You know, whether it's people that you know, some of the client base around Google or Allianz or you know the renewable sector, it's learning from people all the time. Um, through their lived experience, um, but the big thing is that the the, the, the shared, uh, I suppose, um, characteristic of all of these people is 
just their desire to get better. And I think that's something that, you know, I carry forwards is that, you know, if I'm asking other people to get better as leaders or, you know, and those who they lead and their organizations that they lead, then I've got to be asking the question myself. And I think it's something that when I first came into the space, it's like, I've got to know all about the analytics and my background and how I feed that in and so on and so forth. But actually now it's about, I've got to be able to do myself what I'm asking others to do within the roles. And seeing, uh, I listened, you know, and you'll, you'll listen to, um, you know, Chris Williamson and his, his podcast. One of my really interesting takeaways from that was actually Jimmy Carr, right? I didn't think I'd learn an awful lot from Jimmy Carr other than, uh, I remember being, he was at Edinburgh Festival and I remember uh, Best of the Fest, um, I think it's 11.59pm it starts and you never know what you're going to get. And I went there um, with a bunch of my brother's mates and a few pals and we we stood and watched Jimmy Carr do, essentially practice his material um, for obviously future future sessions. And one of the guy, one of my brother's pals heckled him from the balcony because he was basically just reading out stuff yeah. on, on his bit, just as just a gauged reaction. He got heckled and came back with a terrible response. And, and J- Jimmy Carter, I really like his comedy, but it, it opened my eyes to the process that the comedians go through to test, test content and listen to Chris Williams podcast and, um, and Jimmy Carr spoke about trajectory and position and how you'd much rather be on the right trajectory than have the top position. So you'd much rather be, and, and let's, let's use the darts, right? So Luke Littler, right? And Luke Humphreys, both of them are on this upward trajectory. Luke Humphreys hadn't won a major event before October. Now he's won three, four major events. He's won the world title. He's number one in the world, right? Luke Littler, 16-year-old, nobody had ever heard of him. And he's now just reached the PDC World Championship final, lost in the final. But he is on this upward trajectory that is unbelievable. There would be number three in the world, who I'm not even sure who it is, who it is, or number two in the world, who's just been knocked off by Luke Humphreys, is on a downward trajectory because he was number one before this this competition, right? Now, he is probably viewing himself in a lesser position than the person who is Luke Littler. I don't know if he'll be top 32 in the world now, but he was yeah. 200th, let's say, in the world. So he's on this rapid growth. For all of us, like what trajectory are you on? What are you doing to make sure that you're on the upward trajectory and that you're not just relying on position or status or profile or whatever it is within your job, within society, within the business, whatever it might be? Um, Because those are the people who you see treading water or ultimately going backwards because the other people are going to go by them. Complacency and comfort are the two sort of risks there, aren't they? Which, Comfort's oh, dangerous. It is. We should aspire for comfort in life. Obviously, not yeah. to be, not to sound incredibly insensitive in some ways. <laughs> the ways it could be phrased, but yeah, getting too comfortable in one position or getting complacent with the position that you're in is dangerous. Mm. And yeah, it's 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 something that that is something I hold myself fiercely accountable day to day. Where as soon as I start to feel like if I ever catch myself thinking, you've 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 achieved obviously enjoy and embrace the fact that we've we've had a a good month we've done this we've done that i've covered x distance i'm proud of one thing but if you ever feel like you've done it or that's it or job done it's i'm like no wrong reframe it as right how does this contribute to the direction we're going in in the bigger picture yeah and then immediately recalibrate on that otherwise it's easy to think well and then before you know it i i let slip all the things that i know make me that little bit better every day and make me ultimately the happy, healthy version of myself that I am day to day. It's what it's why Christmas period, I've probably come out of the back of it a little bit hazy because a lot of the habits that I hold myself accountable to day to day have been bent a little bit in but you need a very... That. Yeah, you do. You need you that. Do. And I think it's... It's know, what you do next that matters. Yeah, look, it's... um. I guess one of the big things for me is now like curiosity in, in people and like, you know, talk about, you know, leading, learning, whatever it is, right? You know, the Freddie and Louie is four and two years old, the amount that I I learn from them, like, is just, it's like, they are hilarious. But they're teaching me stuff all the time because my curiosity now, essentially, it's like, you know, it's it's this painting that continues to 
to build in a human form, right? And you know that you're influencing, you're having to make decisions for them in many ways. Um, India, my wife, the amount that I learned from her, given her hinterland, um, the way that she approaches like continual improvement. You know, I, I made some some shifts this year with regards to, you know, reaching out to people that can make me better as a as a as a person, and that's learned from her. You know, the, the, these the experiences, the curiosity around what might makes others tick that might work for me as well. Not everything works, but at the same time, I think it's curiosity about what is possible without needing the proof of it being possible. Agreed. Curiosity is my guiding principle mm. and I, I think it's a, a good one to lead by i don't often prescribe or yeah, think yeah. That anything is an individual but i think yeah. curiosity is a fantastic trait slash value to to try and uphold well rory thank you very much really appreciate that if there is somewhere for people to reach out to you or explore corporate leadership options what is the best way to get in touch well look i think uh the, I'm, I'm on this the socials as rory lawson nine on on twitter and instagram um Come through, come through your your pod, and um, you know, rather than chucking my my email out, which which I'm, I'm sure email. I wouldn't we be bombarded yeah, yeah. with loads of business. But you know what? Uh, reach out, reach out on the socials, and uh, and I, I would I would love to pick up. You know, it's um, uh, there is no such thing as a as a, a conversation that doesn't have value in it. Agreed. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Much Thanks appreciated. Thanks for and, having uh, me. Yeah, speak soon. Good man. Cheers.